you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. How do you manage your emotions? Do you do it well? Poorly? Somewhere in between? What is your first reaction most of the times when something wells up inside of you? Uh, In my family, there are four distinct ways that we tend to default to in managing our emotions. Uh, Parker is the youngest at two years old. She has found that uh, when she is overwhelmed, her best result is to run and jump and attack whatever is bothering her. Uh, She is only two, but she has figured out how to take the knees out of her her six-year-old brother. Uh, Speaking of her six-year-old brother, Josiah, he has figured out uh, through watching the Lego Avengers movie how the Hulk screams. So now, whenever Josiah is overwhelmed and feeling his feelings, he goes, you know that you need to de-escalate whatever is happening when that sound comes forth. Uh, Felsha's first response uh, to her emotions is usually to flee from them. Let's pretend like this isn't happening. If we, if we don't address it, uh, it'll go away. She's, she's uh, much calmer than the, the other three of us. She has to actually work on drawing them out and dealing with them. I have found that if I'm not careful, my first reaction to my emotions is to overblow it. To make a much bigger deal about whatever is happening. Uh, to... to um, to spill out my emotions in ways that ends up causing me problems. I have, uh, in, in times past, ruined friendships because uh, of some slight that happened, and I just blow up in ways that were not really reconcilable. Uh, when I first started the church, whenever there was something that happened in the world, my first response is, let's call for prayer and fasting. Let's go march and do whatever. And, and the rest of the staff, calm down. Let's, let's, let's breathe. I think we all have a default for how we respond to our emotions. Now, they're not all healthy. Frankly, most of them are not. Um, and we have to learn how to manage that, to, to use it for good and to deal with the negative ways we handle our emotions. Is the link to today's text crystal clear for you yet? Bill Mattingly is shaking his head that it is not clear at all. That is because this passage has bamboozled me in ways that you would not believe. Uh, when, when I realized this text was coming up, you see, we have a 12-year preaching calendar. Uh, 12 years from now, we know what we're preaching, roughly. Uh, some, some weeks, we know exactly what we're preaching 12 years from now. So this passage has been on our calendar for a while, and when I realized it was coming, I told Felsha, we really have to preach the feeding of 5,000 again? 
This is a story, if you've been all been around the church, you've heard and you know. Most of you could probably come up and do the flannel graph version of this story. You could do a children's sermon. If I said, hey, Jan, come up and tell the feeding of 5,000. Jan could take her mask off, walk up here, and do some version of it with no notes. This is not like Elisha in the mountains or uh, Balaam and his donkey where you'd have to work out the details, right? This is not some genealogy from 2 Chronicles. This is pretty common Christian story. And those are stressful to a preacher. The ones that you're not real familiar with, we can just kind of grab a little handhold and we can just go to town, right? But this one, what do you say fresh about feeding 5,000? And Felsha just metaphorically slapped me upside the head and said, go read it again. There is so much there. Go read it again. And so begrudgingly, I go to read the text again. I have read this so many times and have never paid attention to the first clause in the text. When Jesus heard about John, See, the lectionary skips uh, about a half a chapter. We finish with the uh, parables of the mustard seed, parables of the net, parables of things old and new. Then Jesus is kicked out of his hometown and we turn to chapter 14. But Bill didn't start reading at verse 1. He started reading at verse 13. The first thing we can learn in seminary is to pay attention to context. But somehow I had not paid attention to the context of this passage at all. When Jesus heard about John. When being a, uh, a, a temporal conjunction suggesting a uh, movement in time, a, an event after another event, which says, hey dummy, go look at the stuff before it. What happened? Starting in verse one, at that time, Herod the ruler heard the good news, or heard the news about Jesus. It was not good news. When, at that time, Herod the ruler heard the news about Jesus. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why there's miraculous powers that work through him. Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother, Philip. That's because John told Herod, it's against the law for you to marry her. Although Herod wanted to kill him, he feared the crowd because they thought John was a prophet. But at Herod's birthday party, Herodias', Herodias daughter danced in front of the guest and thrilled Herod. Then he swore to give her anything she asked. At her mother's urging, the girl said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a plate. Although the king was upset because of the solemn pledge and his guest, he commanded that they give it to her. Then he had John beheaded in prison. They brought his head on a plate and gave it to the young woman and she brought it to her mother. But John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus what had happened. Long breath. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. holy imagination trying to picture the incarnate God feeling the feelings that his cousin 
this prophet who he has already said is greater than Elijah is dead. Try to draw on the deepest sense of grief you've experienced, the loss of someone beloved when you know it wasn't right. That shocking, take your breath away sense of injustice, of unfairness. When Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. Herod is afraid of John the Baptist. He's afraid of this person who is doing signs and wonders, who is able to draw these crowds who love him, who desire to be near him, and that scares Herod. And you see, beyond that, John has been unafraid to speak truth to power. Herod wants to take as a wife his brother's wife. And John doesn't shy away from saying, no, this is, this is not okay. This is your brother's wife. And so Herod throws him in jail, but is scared. What do I do? I'm, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm terrified. But if I kill him, this is when they turn from protest to riot, right? This is when they move from uh, in the streets but leaving me alone to insurrection, right? This, this crowd can't have uh, a positive reaction to this. So I'm not gonna kill him. I'm just gonna leave him bound up in prison. That'll, that'll teach him and that'll calm the people down. But the source of all this was this relationship with Herodias and she wants John the Baptist dead. She minces no words. She doesn't think, well, maybe we just throw him in prison. She sends off with his head. But Herod, Herod with, withstands that until he's trapped. See, Herodias' daughter come and dance in this very provocative scene where uh, the king is delighted in her and, and metaphors abound. And you, don't, you, you know this is not a good situation when the daughter of your illicit lover wife is dancing in front of you and you're going to give her whatever she wants. I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a plate. filled with his lusts and his emotions and his inability to set aside his pride and say, okay, I was wrong. I'm not going to give you whatever you want. He says, off with his head. He kills John the Baptist and John's disciples come and take the body and bury it. And then they go to the one whom John had been appointing. The same John who had said, prepare 
the highways and the desert. Make a straight path. The one who had said, I don't deserve to tie your sandals, much less baptize you. The one present at Jesus' baptism. The one who pointed, the one he pointed to, they go to Jesus and tell him what had happened. And when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. The humanity on display in this moment, the management of Jesus' emotions in this moment, stand in stark contrast to the humanity and emotions of Herod. Herod lives out of reactions to uh, his very visceral desires. Jesus who literally with the flick of his hand could wipe out the whole thing, gets on a boat and withdraws to a deserted place to be by himself. If we had a a paraphrase, we'd probably say, to go and to mourn and to be alone and to deal with these feelings and, 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 and. This is the context of the feeding of 5,000s that I have never ever had. He withdrew to a deserted place. When the crowds learned this, they followed him on foot from the city. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were sick. If Jesus had said, leave me alone, he would have been entirely justified. Do you not get that I just withdrew out here to nowhere to be alone? Chad would make a scene. Josiah would go, and Parker would go for the knees. But Jesus has compassion on them and healed those who were sick. We get another temporal marker. That evening, his disciples came to him. I'm using that holy imagination to picture that this is a massive crowd because we know from later that it's 5,000 men plus women and children. How many healings has he done? How many people has he tended to? How many confessions has he heard? How many people have said, you are forgiven? How many has he said, go and sin no more? How many has he said, you are whole? You know how... When you're in grief, your body feels sick even though you're not sick. I'm picturing him standing out in the wilderness, sweaty and tired and completely justified if he got angry. But he spends the day healing them, caring for them. And even in this time when He is not whole and he's had this loss. He is making them whole. And it's fitting that God is in the desert taking care of people. That seems to be a trend in Israel's story of God showing up in the desert and taking care of people even when he would be justified in not doing so. The disciples... Surely they're tired, right? These are like 
the uh, administrators around this healing happening probably right now. They're managing the crowds. They're dealing with the chaos. They have to be tired. Frankly, they know John. They are probably mourning with Jesus. And they're like, look, it's been a long day. We got no food. We're exhausted. And look at them. Look at all these people, Jesus. Just send them home. We, we don't want them to be hungry, right? That can even sound like a message of compassion. Send them home. We don't want them starving. It's dinner time. You've, you've taken care of the sick. Send them, send them on their way. And Jesus says, no. No. No need to send them away. You take care of them too. You give them something to eat. As is common with Jesus' disciples, they don't have the holy imagination in that moment to say, sure, we'll go do that. They are much like me who would go, with what? We don't have anything. There's nothing but five loaves of bread and two fish. So Jesus says, bring them to me. Have them sit down on the grass. And he took the little bit of bread and the two fish and he looked up to heaven, blessed them, broke the loaves apart and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate until they were full and they filled 12 baskets with the leftovers. If you made me do the one sentence summary of this chapter before I had started studying this time, it was Jesus is so powerful he can turn loaves into multitudes. He can stretch that miraculously. And it's absolutely true, right? There is clearly a miracle at work that daily bread for a few people has been multiplied. But the echoes of so much more are just shocking. The compassion that he's pouring out, even in this miracle. Bring me the bread, bring me the fish. He looks to heaven, blesses them, breaks them, and gives them to the people. This imagery should both call us back and push us to look forward. This is clearly the imagery that we're going to see at the Lord's Supper, at uh, that last supper with his disciples where he takes the Passover meal and breaks it and gives it them and says, here is a meal that will sustain you forever. But both of those should also call us back to the desert where people said, how are we going to eat? What are we going to do? We're out here. We should have stayed in Egypt. We hate you, Moses. And God says, just... Turn to me, and I'll rain down manna. And they have it in abundance. So there's leftovers that will rot every day. The people then get greedy because they're sick of just bread, and they want meat, and they go to Moses and say, we hate you, Moses. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. And God says, simply turn to me. And he makes quail appear in abundance meat and bread to sustain the people in the wilderness in their times of sorrow and grief and lamentation for, for they don't know what is ahead of them. 
They know that they've left behind everything in Egypt. As bad as it was, they've left behind the known and now they wander in the unknown. God has a habit of showing up in great compassion, of not responding as we often deserve, but out of his mercy and grace to provide us with that which we need to be made whole and to be sent out well. Jesus could have sent them away having healed them and it would have been a great story. No one would have blamed him. But in his compassion he cares for them physically. It's not enough to take care of their supernatural, spiritual, emotional needs. He's going to meet them in their very enfleshed bodies. Herod Herod reacts out of fear and takes life. He shatters wholeness. He breaks down that which is good. Jesus' first reaction, even in the midst of great grief, is compassion. It's to offer healing and wholeness. To meet both the spiritual and physical needs of the people. That's Jesus, right? Jesus is God. We read in Acts that it's not just Jesus who is called to care for the spiritual and physical needs of people, to respond with compassion, to be a people who live out of our emotions in ways that bring about wholeness and flourishing. In the book of Acts, we read that the work of the church was both to go out and preach the good news and to care for the widows, to make sure that there was daily bread for those who could not provide for themselves. Who are we as humans that God would made us, make us in his image? Just a little bit less than divine. Who would give us dominion over his creation and then task us with announcing that his kingdom is at hand? Who are we that he would entrust us to both say that Christ has died, Christ has risen and come again, and to say, you're hungry? Let me go find out what we can do with some loaves and some fishes. Let me find out how to make you whole. For we, we should mourn at so much in our world. We should feel deep in our soul a sense of grief and lamentation that we would want to withdraw to the wilderness to cry out to God and to name that things are not right but then we should also go and do something about it we should absolutely go with the good news of the kingdom of heaven but that good news is never separated from the good news of God will provide for you and God often provides for you through his people
this story. It's just a collision of the kingdoms of heaven and earth. The kingdom of earth is so clearly on display in the story of Herod. The kingdom of heaven so clearly on display in the story of Jesus. As citizens who live in the kingdom of earth, may we be people who claim allegiance to the kingdom of heaven, who orient our emotions and our reactions to them in ways that point people to the very God who took on flesh in Christ and who died for us, that we might have life.